0: Jesus, this story, we come to it as somebody else's story far away. Seems like Jonah's story. It seems like his life. We might be interested in it or entertained by it, but then we start reading it, start hearing you through it. And we actually realize this is our life. This is our running. This is your chasing. And I pray tonight. That this would be an event, an episode, another, another fresh installment of your pursuit of us. And Would you bring our running to an end? Would we see you as good? Would we see you as gracious, as lovely, as captivating? Would we just see you as you are? That's my prayer tonight. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. We asked the question last week, why does Jonah run? Particularly, why does Jonah run when none of the other prophets that we have the stories of similar calls like this in the Bible? Why don't they run? But he does. At a basic level, I think the reason that they didn't run is that they trusted the God who had called them. Wherever he had called them, whatever he had called them to do, they knew that voice. They trusted the heart that spoke those words. They'd had a proven track record with this God that he is good. He is for me. I may not know exactly what he's asking of me. I might not understand fully what he's asking me to do. I might not know what it entails. And I might kind of wrestle with him or have some questions about, really, how is this going to happen? But they had yielded themselves in some way or another because they trusted God. That awe of God was still there and they trusted him. In a sense, you could say that they had relinquished editorial control of their lives. They they so trusted God and his love for them and his plan for them that they had kind of handed over editing rights to their stories and their lives. It was like the song we sometimes sing here, Oh, guide me, thou great Jehovah. I may not know which way I go, but, oh, I know my guide. They knew their God. And so when he called, when his voice kind of interrupted whatever they were doing, wherever they were going, whatever they were about at that moment, it was a welcomed voice, even if it was a hard call. But Jonah goes the other way. Jonah won't relinquish editorial control. Jonah maintains veto power. You can ask me what you want, Lord. We'll have this relationship. We'll have conversation. I'll do a lot of things you want, but I get final say. I want veto rights. I keep editorial control. It's my story. It's my life. So when the voice of God brings a call to Jonah, an invitation to Jonah, It doesn't align with what Jonah wanted or what Jonah had dreamed or thought about his future. Jonah runs. And that's the difference in people who run and people who yield. I was sharing this story actually last night at Freshman Fellowship. And as I was sharing this story for a different topic, a different passage, I'm thinking, wow, this like completely speaks to the passage that Elijah just read. It's a story from the movie Saving Mr. Banks. Tom Hanks, Emma Thompson, I think some other people in there. And it's the real life account of Walt Disney's relationship with P.L. Travers, Pamela Travers, who wrote the story that we now know as Mary Poppins. And the story is really just this long kind of tug of war between these two characters, Walt and Pamela. Disney had come across a copy of her Mary Poppins story and he had just torn it up. He loved it, read it to his kids every night. But when he read it to his kids, he would embellish it. He would read things that weren't on the page. He'd even make up songs on the spot and sing it. The story was coming to life. They were giggling. They were laughing. The, the story started to dance. And, he, and Disney became obsessed with wanting to bring this Mary Poppins story to life on the big screen. So he has his people reach out to Pamela Travers in England. This kind of uptight, prudish, older lady. She's uh, not a person you'd really want to spend much time with. And so predictably, she turns down the first several attempts that di- of Disney's people. Offering to... Ca- can we talk? I want to. I want to share your story with the world. I want to put it up on the s- screen and bring it to life. And very quickly she says no. Well, later on she comes into some financial need. And she needs the money basically. And so... This time she says to to Disney, I'll fly out to California and I'll kind of be a consultant. I'll watch the actors, the artists, as they kind of do mock-ups of how you're going to tell this story. But she says this in the movie. She looks at Tom Hanks' character, Walt Disney, and she says, I get final say. And if I don't like what you're doing to Mary Poppins, I'm taking my story and I'm walking out. And the rest of the movie is this tug of war. Because she doesn't like what Walt's doing with Mary Poppins. She doesn't like what he's doing with the other characters. She doesn't like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. She doesn't like let's go fly a kite. It's too childish. She would not relinquish editorial control. Travers thought if Walt Disney takes my story and these characters in his hands, he's going to ruin it. This is not what I had in mind. And so she won't and she can't relinquish Editorial control of her story. And neither could Jonah, right? He was so protective of his ideas, whatever they were, his dreams, whatever they were, his agenda, whatever it was. That the thought of God getting his hands on his story, on his life, on his plans would be to ruin his life, to ruin his plans. And so this tug of war starts and Jonah moves first. And he runs like we talked about last week. And he's, he's sitting there thinking, how could anything good come from this voice from the Lord? This call. It's Nineveh for God's sake. Nineveh today is like Nineveh then, a stronghold of ISIS. It's filled with people like that. Not just haters, but violent murderers of people like Jonah. How could anything good come out of this plan? I don't get it. I've thought it all through. Nothing good could come out of me going to Nineveh and preaching repentance into that great city. He saw all the negatives, all the costs. He saw all the deaths he would have to die if he yielded himself to this God and his voice. I don't know if truer words have ever been said about the human heart and the way it really is than what Pamela Travers says to Walt Disney and what the what scripture says when it looks at our hearts we are creatures who because of sin the bible says will not cannot relinquish editorial control of our stories because we are convinced to do so would ruin our lives would ruin our stories would make a mess of it all dancing would not result music would not result laughter would not result death would result boredom would result dullness would result And so we are in a tug of war and we run. We run. Think about the specific places we do it. I get it. You might not be at a place where you're seeing the correlation. Like there's not this all encompassing, all of me running from God. I'm not kind of like self-consciously trying to get away from him. But think about the, the smaller places of our lives that we refuse to yield editorial control to a different author, a better author. Our sexuality is probably a vibrant and easy place to start. It's probably low-hanging fruit for this conversation, right? And it's all of us. It doesn't matter what particular manifestations your sin expresses in your sexuality. But think about the places where we've said, I'm fine with the Me Too movement. I'm fine with not, you know, sexual exploitation being eradicated. God, I agree with you there. Don't use power to kind of finance your lust and temptation. I'm on board with that. But he says something else. Or he says, your identity... Is in me. And my vision for your sexuality is the vision for your life. And you're thriving and you're flourishing. And we say, "Ooh, volume down a little bit. I can hear that just at a lower volume. And we start to turn the volume down. And we start to define ourselves and identify ourselves in an arbitrary way that conveniently aligns with my agenda, my desires. You see how this happens? We do it with our thoughts and our behaviors. We do this in kind of our relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever we think about that stuff. We kind of rewrite the script because we will not relinquish editorial control because to yield ourselves to God in that part of our lives would be to ruin that part of our lives. Right. Isn't that how we think? Isn't that the psychology of our hearts and our emotions and our fears? We do this when we decide Who or what kind of people we're going to be friends with and what kind of people aren't worthy of our relational attention? What kind of people in this room get to become invisible because they're just not that interesting? What kind of people are super visible? We will not relinquish control of our stories. And it's not just that, because if you're like me, it's a little bit more than that. It's not just that I won't relinquish editorial control of my story. It's that I assume editorial control over God's story, right? It's not just that I won't give up editing rights to him, but I will assume editing rights over his story, and I will re-script scripture. And again, conveniently, lo and behold, the Bible begins to align with what I wish it said, with my visions of the good life or my visions of where happiness comes from, thriving comes from, me truly being myself comes from. This stuff gets real, friends, right? Are you, are you seeing yourself in Jonah? Do you see yourself in this, this believer who's on the run? If you don't believe this stuff, are you starting to see you have a lot more in common with Christians than you think? Because we have the same heart you do. We're on the run. We love our story. And we love veto power and we don't want to yield it. And at the root of it is a lack of trust or belief that God is good. It is easy for us to run from God, too. You would think it would be hard, right? Wouldn't you think like running from the God who made this world, made me, sustains the world and sustains me, who is sovereign over every minute microscopic detail. Wouldn't you think it would be difficult to run from him? Like it's difficult to deny gravity. Is it difficult to deny God? You would think so. It doesn't appear that way at first. There are always things close at hand that will facilitate our escape from his presence. Uh, Tim Keller says, if you if you want to run away from God, there will always be a ship there to take you. Jonah goes, he hears the word of God. He goes and clears out the bank account, gets all this money to do what would have been a month's long journey to Spain, to Tarshish. And lo and behold, when he gets to Joppa, the port city, lo and behold, there's a ship there. And you got to wonder a little bit. This was a a deeply religious man. He knew this God, long history. He knows God is sovereign. You got to be wondering how merciful is this God kind of rubber stamping, validating and kind of saying, okay, Jonah, I guess that's a no. That's okay. You want to go to Tarshish here? Here's a boat. You see how we spiritualize these things? We start to wonder, is this a sign from God that this is the right decision? And we, 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 we re-script scripture. And this is all things that we don't see as running. It is running from God. This is what an anatomy of running looks like. There will always be a way to escape the presence of God. There will always be a rationale. There will always be a justification that justifies my character and assassinates his character. If you want to deny the existence of God, you will always be able to dig up some scientific study done by somebody that will conveniently report back to you conclusions that you'd already concluded. You just needed someone else to say it, right? There will always be a study that you can find that validates what you want to be true or what you want to do with your life or what is right and what is wrong. There will always be a ship to carry us away from the presence of God if we're looking for it. And when we get on these boats, when those ships sail, we end up running further and further from the presence of God. That's the repetitious theme of the passage. And Jonah left the presence of the Lord. He fleed the presence of the Lord. As if this is an intruder, as if God is an invader there to kill him. He flees the presence of the Lord. And I guarantee you. He still prayed. We know he does because in a couple of weeks, we're going to see Jonah's prayer. We know he still thought about God. We know there was still rationalization going on. There had to have been easy human being like us. We will flee the presence of God. We will get on these ships that facilitate in a big way or a tiny little way one piece of your life. We will run from God. And as we run from run from his presence, we will we will still kind of try to replicate his presence. There's an old country song by Joe Diffie called prop me up beside the jukebox if I die. And in a sense is as if God has died in our lives, we have left him, we are fleeing from him, but we just can't live without his presence because it was so sweet and so calming and so dynamic and so powerful and so real. And so we have to replicate it. But you, you're in on the joke, too. I know you are. No amount of lip service to God, no amount of coming to RUF, no amount of books you read or retreats you go on, no amount of conjuring up spiritual emotions, no amount of finding a theology that already agreed with what you believe will ever replicate the presence of God. Just like digging up the diary of a dead person will not manufacture their presence It'll just remind you more and more deeply of their loss. Friends, the ways that you and I try to remanufacture the presence of God after we have fled from the presence of God really deep down only reminds us of what we've lost. It only nags at us more. It does not work. And we know this. We know this. The text gets it, too. He, The, the, the author of Jonah is is artfully in Hebrew describing just symbolically what's happening here. It's a disintegration and a death. you pick it up when Elijah was reading? He, I'll, I'll pick up on a few of them. He says, uh, Jonah is going down to Joppa. He pays for the fare and then he goes down into the boat. The storm comes, but Jonah has gone down into the inner part of the ship and he has laid down, down and 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 away from the presence of God. The, the, the Hebrew itself is symbolizing Jonah going down into the grave. Which is where we always go when we run from God. He is life. He is the author and sustainer and generous giver of life and abundance. When we leave him, the only direction we have to run is death. And Jonah is going down and down and down. I am thankful, friends. This is heavy stuff. If this is your first time, like, look, we're trying to be honest and real about what the Bible says, because is this not describing what life is really like? This is where the story might end. It might fairly end here. If God is good and fair and just and holy and he, he does right and he loves righteousness, don't you see how easy it would be for a period to be stuck right here? And the story ends. And the moral lesson is don't run like Jonah does, right? Listen up, kids. See what happens when you run from God. The story could have ended. And if Christianity were not a dynamic reality of the universe that is true, and if it were just a religion, this is where the story would have ended. If the Bible was written by mere men and women, this is where the story would have ended. It's a great manipulative arm twist, right? It's like an arrested development. And that's why you don't do this. This is what that would have been. But the story goes on. We're like three or four verses in. You're like, well, what's left of four chapters? What's left of four chapters is God chasing Jonah. The first few verses was Jonah running from God, and then the chase begins, and God chases Jonah. But it's a little more complicated than you might think, and this is the second thing. That we're going to talk about is the effects of running from God. What are the effects or the consequences uh, or the symptoms of running from God? What would it feel like? Well, again, uh, kind of another way to put something I said earlier. The effects of running from God is this. (laughs) Running from God is running toward a storm. (laughs) It always is. Running from God is running toward a storm. You cannot... Uh, his presence, his glory fills the earth that he made. It, it overflows the earth, this tiny little blip in all that he's made, and he is infinite. Running from God, or his mission is running toward a storm So Jonah runs, but apparently God still maintains editorial control. That's a surprise to us, right? We thought Jonah was the one making decisions. We thought Jonah got the last say, like P.L. Travers. We thought he got veto power, but apparently he doesn't. Apparently there's someone bigger than you in your story. There's someone bigger than me in my story. The question is, is he good or is he bad? What will he do? Will he just kind of say, well, forget you. You want veto power? You got it. You want control? Here you go, Jonah. Nice knowing you. But this God maintains editing rights. And what he edits into Jonah's life next is in verse 4. And he says this, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break apart. This is it, this is interesting, but follow with me. You know, we said last week, one of the reasons we drift from God, one of the reasons it's so easy for us to run from God is because we have lost an awe of him. The old theologians back in the way, the word awful, we think of it as a bad thing. It originally was a positive term, full of awe, awful, the awful presence of the Lord. Now we're like, what? We've lost a sense of awe. Awe is that thing. I can't take my eyes off it. It never gets old. It's always fresh. It's always captivating. I never want to leave. I just want to be here forever. That's awe. And when you lose that sense of awe, we drift away and it's easy to run away to things that do bring us awe. But here's the interesting thing. God can and will restore a sense of awe and people who have run from him. But the way that he will regain that awe and bring us back in amazement with him and arrest our attention and captivate us is through these storms, these storms of mercy. And the storm, we're not storm chasers, the storm chases you. Wherever you go, this storm of mercy will chase you because its intention is to bring us back and to wake us up. And the storm itself uh, will bring awe to us. Now, how do I know it brings awe to us? The text says that the mariners were afraid. Mariners are professional term. The mariners were panicked. They had already wet their pants. They had already lit their hair on fire. They're finally going down to wake up. Jonah, what are you doing? Oh, sleeper, get up. We're going to die. These were the professionals. Imagine your flight attendant saying this stuff. We're all going down. We're going to die. And you're like, this is not inspiring confidence. Imagine a cop saying this after he's come to your house to get the burglar out. This does not inspire confidence. All hell is breaking loose. Even the professionals have never experienced anything like this. This is a mercy storm. This is dispatched from the loving arms of the sovereign God who speaks to storms, who speaks to waves, who carries boats. And it undoes all of the control. How much shaking does God have to do to get our attention? Let's be honest. I know you know the answer. I know you do because you're like me. More than you think is the answer. It's always more shaking than we think. Feel a little jostle, okay? But we don't notice it. Jonah sleeps through the first part of this and has to be woken up. Jonah is oblivious to the ferocious pursuit of the God of mercy. He is lights out. He is unaware or unconcerned about what is going on outside. How much shaking does it take for us to, for God to invade us with a sense of awe and amazement of him again? More than we think. More than we think. How do I know that? Because the first thing the mariners do is not cry out to God. What's the first thing they do? They jettison all the heavy cargo. This was the whole reason they were getting paid. People pay you to ship stuff. And the first thing, they're like, get rid of all the stuff people paid us to ship. It's going to be a big bill if they survive this storm, paying those people back. Get rid of the cargo. All hands on deck. Take matters into our own hands. and, And keep the ship afloat. Avoid shipwreck. That's the first thing they do. The second thing that they do is not cry out to the God. They cry out each to his own God. Isn't that what the passage says? And you begin to realize a little bit more about these sailors, and we'll especially get to see a lot more next week about these sailors. But these sailors are just as much on the run as Jonah is. The difference is Jonah knows the God he's on the run from. The sailors know about him, but they don't know him. You'd call Jonah maybe a believer and the sailors, non-believers, both are on the run. Both will not give up control of their lives because they deeply distrust this God. And God comes in pursuit of all of those on deck, the sailors and Jonah. And their last ditch Hail Mary effort is to each cry out to his own God. And the point here is that chaos itself, these storms itself, pandemonium in your life itself, anxiety in your life itself has no redemptive power. All it will do is not necessarily catapult you to your God. It'll catapult you to your functional gods. To my functional gods. Think about this. This past week or over Christmas break, when chaos came knocking, stuff hit the fan Things were slipping out of control, either in a little way or a big way. Where did you run? Oftentimes, when this stuff's going on, I'll run to food. I'll run to Amazon. Netflix is always waiting on me. And it has such beautiful things to show me. Sleep. Endorphins. Every time chaos comes, I go and take a run because that just that chemical release is like drugs to me. That's my refuge. That's my God that I cry out to. The illusion of control that cutting or harming yourself gives you. When life is slipping out of control, I can cut and control the infliction of pain or I can punish myself and put order back on my life. Friends, no matter what the functional God that we cry out to, When chaos comes knocking and mercy storms envelop us, no matter what they are, they do not work, right? There's buyer's remorse every time. The tragedy of addiction is the addict knows he or she is doing his killing themselves, right? That's the tragedy of it. They're not, man, heroin's awesome. I love this. Man, I'm going places. They know they're killing themselves, but they have to have it it 's a functional God that they run to for refuge when chaos comes, and we do too that 's what the sailors do oddly, not even Jonah is not doing this he 's not even to that point yet they don 't know the source of the storm, and so they don 't know who to call out to they don 't know that they're in they're, they don 't know that they 're being pursued by god 's long arm of mercy, and so they don 't know who to cry out to really quickly before. We get captivated and awed uh, by these storms. We've got to remember who's behind it, who hurled this storm. And this is not just G-O-D. God hurled this storm. In Hebrew, it's Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps. This is the intimate family relational name that Israel had for Yahweh, their God. It's like dad hurled a storm at his son to bring him back. And again, the amazing thing is the sailors, you're kind of like, I'm going to go with them because they seem to be responding in a healthier way than Jonah, who's still sleeping, still hadn't woken up yet. All the stuff we've talked about, Jonah still lights out. And you wonder uh, what's going on. He's still oblivious. Sometimes you'll hear people say stuff like uh, they will be in the midst of a mercy storm. Something has happened. They have cut. We, I should say we, we in some way or another, have kind of, I don't know, we've pushed the boundaries somewhere. we have kind of living a double life. We have some secrets we're not talking about. We have some areas we've just agreed to disagree with God. And we've started to feel the effects of that and the shame of that and the crushing guilt of those things. And of course, we don't feel the presence of God anymore. Why would we? We have run from him. But we start to blame him for it. And we start to say things like, Man, this happened and this happened. I just don't understand. Where is God in this? I'm crying out for him to, to, to show himself. I'm desperate. Where is he? And it's with an accusational tone. And we get to say in those moments, you can say to me and I can say to you in those moments, I beg to differ. I think you are experiencing the presence of God. But it's in a more complicated and different way than you were expecting. Because when you run, God comes running after you. And sometimes his mercy is severe and sometimes his mercy is violent. Becky Pippert is uh, some uh, novelist and theologian. And she always says this. She says, the more the mother loves her son, the more she hates the drunkard in her son. And the more ferocious her pursuit and her intervention to save her son from the drunkard and her son the more the father loves the child the more he hates what kills the child or what threatens the child and this is the motivation of why god would ever send something so chaotic and arresting captivating in the sense of i'm paying attention now not because so much as he's punishing us as he's pursuing us and if you don't make that distinction The storm that you're caught in will only become more fodder to hate him and run from him. Some of you are in very difficult circumstances right now, and you can probably reverse engineer and figure out why. I'm about to talk to some of you don't, and we're about to talk about that. But some of you can kind of since been totally, I won't say this out loud, but I got I'm running. I made the decision months ago. I've been running my whole life. And, you know, the storm you're in is God pursuing you. Instead of continuing to hate him for not being near or present or making the anxiety go away, what would it look like to bend the knee and say he came for me? He came for me. Even me. Even here. The chaos is the evidence of his presence, not of his absence. Some of you are suffering. Some of us are suffering for a variety of other reasons. That is not your sin. And you need to hear me on this. The Bible doesn't have a simplistic, monolithic answer for why bad things happen. Bad things happen because I'm a sinner. No, bad things happen for scores of reasons. You live in a broken world. You live in a world filled with injustice. We have broken bodies, broken emotions, broken thoughts, broken psyches. You could be suffering from any of those things. What Jonah is talking about is suffering that is brought on by running from God. And refusing to yield editing rights to a good and gracious author. The sailors tell Jonah in verse 8, perhaps, they say, you get up and you cry to your God because perhaps the God will have a thought for us and spare us. And where we go in the coming weeks, and it's already a little highlight of it in this passage is, of course, this God will hear you will think of you and will spare you because he's been thinking of you since before you got on the boat. It is his thinking of you that led him in chase. It is his care for you that sent him running when you ran. The last thing we talk about as we finish is the effects of God running after you. You know, David wrote Psalm 23. You're probably familiar with that. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, and And he has a line in there where he says at the very end of the song, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And in Hebrew, that word follow has more of a connotation of chase or chase down or pursue. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me or chase me down, will follow me all the days of my life. Now, what I don't know is when David wrote Psalm 23. Was it before he had sex with Bathsheba, got her husband killed, and began to live a double life for at least a year, faking it before God and everybody else? Or was it after? But here's here's the thing. If he wrote those words after... Surely, goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. What did it look like when goodness and mercy followed him in the days after his fall? The worst decision of his life that at the moment didn't feel that bad. God sent a storm. Because he writes in Psalm 51, this is what the storm or a mercy storm feels like. When I kept silent, when I lived the double life, pretended like I was fine, refused to repent, refused to acknowledge God. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, O oh Lord, was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in a hot summer day. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Your hand was heavy upon me when I kept silent and my bones wasted away. When we will not repent in a response to God's gracious and tender call, Hey, I know what the week's been like. Let's talk. We don't have to go weeks with not talking about this. Let's talk. I love you. Let's pick up right here. Let's take another little step forward, okay? Jesus went to the cross to free you from what happened last night. Let's repent. Come on, realign. Here we go. Come back. That could happen or what Jonah did could happen. And he's trying to shorten that string between when we fall and when we run. I want to end with two quotes. The poem Home by Warson Shire, we talked about it this past spring when we were going through the Exile series. This is a poet who is writing about the experience of parents putting their little kids on rickety boats, sending them to Greece and other European countries to get them out of the Syrian civil war. He says, you have to understand that no one puts their child in a boat Unless the water is safer than the land. Who would choose to spend days and nights in the stomach of a truck? Unless the miles traveled meant something more than the journey. Friends, can you conceive that for Jonah? Being in this storm that felt like it was threatening his very life was a safer place to be than in the calm waters. Why? Because God was bringing him back and he does it to you, too. There are some times and seasons in your life when the chaos you're in is a safer place to be because God is there than if you were sailing in the sunset, fleeing from his presence in conscious or unconscious ways. And the last thing I want to say, Walt Disney, what was the end of that story? How did P.L. Travers ever fully give up the story, which she did and began to delight in it? It's over a long period of time. She spent more and more time with Disney and his writers and his artists, and she saw what they were doing. She saw that he was doing something she could never do to her own story, which is inject life into it. And music and dancing and laughter starts coming out of the pages. She begins to trust him more and more with her story and sees he's not ruining the characters. He's resurrecting the characters. He's bringing them to life. Disney looks at her later on and he says, now, Pam, I want you to know that the last thing I would do, the very last thing I would ever do is tarnish a story that I have cherished. Now, the pages of your books are worn to tissue. They're dog-eared and falling out because I've poured over them. I've gripped and tormented because I love her, Pam. I love Mary Poppins and you have got to share her with me. This is what the Lord says as he pursues us, even in severe mercy. You've got to share your life with me. It is a life I have cherished all at my own expense. It is a life I have laid my life down to pursue. I would never tarnish this story because I love you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have pursued us all the way to the cross and through to the resurrection. You would never ruin and tarnish our stories. You are the author of our stories and you are the author of our lives. Why would you destroy life? We need your help. We need sanity. We need to know where we are. We need to know where you are. We pray that through this passage, through this message, you would answer these prayers. We ask in your name. Amen.